do we see at Groundswell this year, the 26th and 27th of June, close to London, UK? Many friends of the podcast will be there. John Kempf, Abby Rose, Benedict Bozo, Henry Dimbleby, Claire Hill, Russ Carrington, Andy Cato, Tim Coates, and many, many more. See you there. You're going to listen to a deep dive into a very ambitious investment project into regenerative agriculture, aiming to take a whole region in India with 46 million people of chemical fertilizers, herbicides, and pesticides, all financed by climate bonds. Enjoy. Welcome to another episode of Investing in Regenerative Agriculture, Investing as if the Planet Mattered, a podcast show where I talk to the pioneers in the regenerative food and agriculture space to learn more on how to put our money to work to regenerate soil, people, local communities and ecosystems while making an appropriate and fair return. Why am I focused on soil and regeneration? Because so many of the pressing issues we face today have their roots in how we treat our land, grow our food and what we eat. And it's time that we as investors, big and small and consumers, start paying much more attention to the dirt slash soil underneath our feet. Before we get started, I've been recording these interviews next to my day job and I will definitely continue to do so and release about an episode a month. But at the same time, I would love to take this further, share more interviews. There are many more stories to share on investing in regenerative food and agriculture, more depth, improve the quality, maybe even doing some video series. So I started a Patreon community, which makes it easy to support creators like myself. If these podcasts have been of value to you, and if you have the means, I invite you to support me and make this happen. For more information, please find the link to my Patreon account in the description below. And now, without further ado, the interview. Enjoy! Welcome to Investing in Regenerative Agriculture, Investing as if the Planet Mattered. I'm Kung your host. Today I'm talking to Sacha Tripathi, Chair of the Board of the Sustainable India Finance Facility, a partnership between United Nations Environmental Programme, World Agroforestry Centre and BNP Paribas. It brings long-term finance to projects and companies that stimulate green growth, increase resilience, reduce greenhouse gases and improve rural livelihoods. Among them is a project which we'll discuss extensively today, a climate bond of $2.3 billion to finance the transition of 6 million smallholder farmers to zero-budget natural farming in the state of Andhra Pradesh in India. As you can imagine, I have a lot of questions on this. Welcome, Sacha. Uh, thank you, Korn. And to start with a personal question, what brings you but what brings you to working on connecting institutional investors to to landscapes, to soil, to smallholder farmers? Well, I think, you know, the um, at UN Environment, uh, I lead the work of the organization on Agenda 2030, or uh, which is more popularly known as the Sustainable Development Goals, the 17 goals and the 169 um, targets. And uh, while there's a lot of discussion about uh, indicators, benchmarks, measurement, the resources are the biggest question, in my opinion, that unless we can find the money that it takes to achieve the SDGs, uh, the rest of it is just process. Uh, and process doesn't interest uh, anyone and, and certainly not uh, the people at the bottom of the pyramid. And that's why... Uh, what we are doing through the Sustainable India Finance Facility is play the role of a catalyst. Uh, and I'm delighted that uh, three of the world's leading institutions have come together. Uh, UNEP is the world's uh, environmental authority. Uh, the World Agroforestry Center is the world's leading research facility on agroforestry and related uh, matters. And BNP Paribas is the largest uh, bank in Europe. And I'm so delighted that... Uh, they just won the Euro Money uh, more, uh, Bank uh, Best Bank of the Year 2017 uh, on sustainable finance. So, so we have the right partners coming together with the right intent to make a substantive difference to the lives and livelihoods of people because that's at the core of the climate challenge. Uh, you need to have uh, the right kind of livelihood options available to people uh, that takes care of uh, health, nutrition, uh, education, and uh, both family and community prosperity, uh, which will then create the kind of resilience we need to deal with the bigger climate questions. Uh, hence, the Sustainable India Finance Facility. When when you look at this project, uh, which in terms of size, in terms of ambition, seems really unique and and uh, and extremely interesting, obviously to me, can we? 
dive a bit deeper into it. How did it came about? Why this state, Andhra Pradesh, and what is exactly uh, the goal of, of this project on, on zero budget natural farming? So when did this start and, and where are you now in the, in the process? Sure. Uh, let me start by giving you a little bit of a, um, uh, a rather preface it a little bit on what we are doing in India. Please. So there are three big ideas we're working on. Uh, the first uh, is, of course, the zero-budget natural farming project in Andhra Pradesh. Uh, the second is dealing with the air quality uh, in North India and, and, and also the other countries in the region, but we are primarily focused on India as the Sustainable India Finance Facility, but it's going to benefit the neighboring countries as well once the air quality issue is uh, dealt with. Um, and then, of course, uh, we're looking at water. Uh, as a very, very scarce and valuable resource for a country like India. And, and much of the water bodies are completely contaminated uh, and unusable, uh, for even for agriculture, uh, let alone human consumption. So we focused on these three big uh, issues, um, sustainable agriculture, um, water, uh, and air. Uh, and then, of course, uh, we're working on... Uh, uh, big ideas on all these three axes. Let me start with the zero-budget natural farming. Uh, this is something that has been around for a while. Um, some call it regenerative agriculture. Uh, some call, call it zero chemicals farming, where you don't use any synthetic chemicals. So uh, this is how we farmed before uh, chemical fertilizers came about. And uh, although initially they were seen as a lifesaver because it increased yields, and fed the billions, but um, uh, a few decades down the line, six, seven decades to be precise, we know now that uh, uh, it has uh, led to rampant use of uh, synthetic chemical fertilizers around the world and uh, more or less destroyed the landscapes across the planet, uh, not to mention the chemical runoffs into groundwater, because nitrates are water soluble, so they are all all over the place in our groundwater, and then uh, the, with the concentrations rising uh, with every passing crop cycle, and uh, and of course the chemical runoff into the oceans, uh, which affects um, life in water literally in seventy percent of the planet. You know, so so there's there are huge challenges there, and uh, in India, in the state of Andhra Pradesh, uh, the chief minister. Is a, is a champion in his own right. And uh, he decided uh, in 2015 that uh, while there's a lot of clamor in India for farm loan waivers, perhaps for the right reasons, because the farmer is trapped in a vicious cycle of debt, penury, and death. So uh, he said, okay, the immediate urgency is to get the farmers some farm loan waiver so that looks after their immediate needs. But this can't be a solution. This is more a Band-Aid. We have to look at long-term solutions with three goals in mind. And the first was, of course, reduce the input cost so that the farmers don't have to acquire unsustainable debt, improve the yields, uh, and uh, make it uh, healthy. Uh, and that's what they did with this zero-budget natural farming program. Uh, it started in 2015. It's led by uh, a champion called Vijay Kumar, uh, who is at the heart of India's uh, efforts to develop uh, women's self-help groups, uh, starting in Andhra Pradesh, but then across the country. Uh, he's the person responsible for leading the efforts that set up the self-help groups uh, in Andhra Pradesh with 11.5 million women. So you have the right leader um, at a political level. You have the right leader at a program level. Uh, and uh, and they have done absolutely outstanding work uh, in the sense that uh, so far they have rolled out zero-budget natural farming to 165,000 farmers. Uh, as we speak, the new um, season, uh, agricultural season has started. And uh, by September, they'll be up to 300,000 farmers. And then with the next crop cycle, uh, the winter one, they would be up to a half a million farmers. 
by March 2019. And then that's when we stepped in. We started the discussions in 2017. Eric Solheim, the head of UN Environment, uh, was in Andhra Pradesh meeting with the chief minister, uh, discussing uh, my new details of how we'll collaborate and how we'll partner. Uh, then, uh, then we started the work and uh, we are partnered with some of the world's leading research institutions and others to bring um, scientific certainty and accuracy to the program because the fact is that uh, the results speak for themselves. And, and what are they, what's like an example um... I mean, it's always nice to hear the before and after, but a typical smallholder farmer that, that is in the process, what, what's the impact? Yeah, to give you an example, there are tens of thousands of cases where the input costs have gone down by 80% because you do not use synthetic chemical fertilizers anymore. Uh, it is purely natural farming, and they use a cow dung and cow urine as the base, and they use the local variety of cows because one of the guiding principles of zero-budget natural farming is that all ingredients, including seeds, must be local. Nothing comes from outside, so that protects the integrity of the ecosystem and the regenerative cycle. And then the um, uh, what they use is cow dung and cow urine of the boss indicus variety. Because that's key to have a local variety because it interacts with the soil in a very different way than an imported one from the Netherlands, for instance. Exactly, because they're all part of the cycle. You know, they consume the same things and they excrete. And so it's, it's a part of the regenerative cycle. And uh, so they use cow dung and cow urine and about 200 different botanical substances, um, neem, uh, you know, all kinds of uh, uh, botanical, beneficial botanical substances. And uh, they make different mixtures, uh, which uh, uh, which can be simply, in simple terms, put across as a process of bioinoculation. So this is not organic farming, because organic farming uh, is a process of farming where you substitute one form of fertilizer for another. So you're basically taking away a chemical fertilizer and using a natural fertilizer, but you're fertilizing, uh, you're fertilizing the soil nevertheless. Here it is not that. Here it is bioinoculation, preparing the soil, preparing the seeds to interact with each other, and then through a complex process of uh, engagement throughout the crop cycle, um, you have uh, uh, even there's integrated pest management, but at the same time there are uh, concoctions that you use to prevent uh, any uh, pest infestation. Uh, and and uh, it has proved uh, amazingly resilient to uh, normal pest attacks and all throughout the last three years of uh, rollout that has been going on. So the uh, in, to summarize, the input costs dropped dramatically. Uh, the outputs increased marginally, uh, anywhere between eight to twenty-eight percent, depending on the crop and the integrity of the effort you have undertaken. Um, and then last but not the least, uh, there's solid evidence that uh, water requirements for agriculture drop by almost 50%, uh, which is something, again, we are working with uh, the UNEP DHI uh, Water Center uh, to, to document and, uh, and scientifically establish that this does indeed improve resilience um, and efficiency in water use uh, for agriculture. And what about the nutrients in the food? Is there a significant um, difference between the, the chemical-based ones and the non? I mean, I'm assuming yes, but as you are, uh, are monitoring every everything, uh, are you also monitoring this or will there be something for the future? We we are monitoring this and, and it will be much more extensive in the future. Uh, and I'll, I can tell you that there is a big difference. Uh, and the difference is not uh, as much in nutrient, uh, but more in the chemicals that you find in food grains and vegetables and fruits, uh, as opposed to natural farming. Here you don't find any chemicals. Uh, so that's the difference. Do you want to learn how to invest or are you an entrepreneur and want to build companies in the regenerative food and agriculture space? 
or do you work in big ag and big food and want to really move the needle, we have developed a new video course for you. Find out more on investinginregenerativeagriculture.com slash course or in the show notes description below. So it's more the absence of toxics than it is maybe the increase of nutrients. Yeah. I wouldn't say there is increase in nutrients, but, uh, but that's something that's a more a long-term study. Uh, we haven't seen any significant drop in nutrients, so so that's uh, uh, very encouraging. Uh, but then again, you know, so uh, there's all kinds of uh, uh, theories uh, to contend with. I think, to be fair uh, to those that are practicing it and uh, the scientific community, um, in my view, this is a more a long-term uh, process that... Uh, uh, would unfold. So we have instituted studies already that will continually monitor this over the next several years. So then we would really know uh, what really happens, you know. So uh, for the time being, there's no nutrient loss uh, that I can tell you for the sure, but then it has just started, you know. So you can't really say that uh, conclusively unless you have uh, substantive data over uh, numerous crop cycles yeah and, and there's a a discussion going on in the regenerative agriculture space which is um, slowly getting more concrete on the interaction between very lively soil and healthy soils produce and then your your gut system um, but there i haven't seen too much research coming out yet i know some people are working on it that it's not necessarily even the, the nutrient increase but actually that your body is able to access the nutrients just as the roots of the plant is able to access the nutrients in the soil because it's much more healthy. Maybe there's a connection there as well between healthy soil, healthy produce, and thus healthy gut and healthy people. But that's something that's very on the edge of, of, uh, of research at the moment. But this, of course, could be an excellent case also to, to see the long-term health impact on the farmers, not just of the less chemicals they have to use, but also of, of, their, of their diet changes. Uh, completely agree. I have actually uh, uh, come across the studies you're mentioning, and uh, I'm really eager to uh, see more research happening in this space because this is not uh, a rocket science. The fact that if you live in an healthy eco within a healthy ecosystem, uh, your body is healthy. Uh, it's the same way, you know, if you are in a chemical uh, chemical infested area. You, are, you pick up all kinds of problems because your body is processing all those harmful chemicals. And, and body, like any other living creature, has limited ability to deal with uh, these uh, uh, foreign uh, influences. And then that's why it will be really exciting to see. And, and we would actually welcome anybody that is doing these research to come together with us and we'll provide access to all the data um, and the farmers and the practices, uh, because our vested interest is in finding a solution, not pushing a particular type of idea. Uh, and, uh, and, and, and the fact that we are working with uh, BNP Paribas um, and numerous other partners to invest $2.3 billion into this program to facilitate a smooth transition of the program to 6 million smallholders. The whole idea is not as much the fact that uh, this benefits smallholders and, uh, and it's a good thing to do, that remains. Um, that's the primary goal, all right. But what we think is that this could become the floor or the baseline for uh, amazing research on a variety of areas, including human health, um, regeneration of uh, coastal ecosystems. Andhra Pradesh is the second largest, uh, has the second largest coastline in terms of provinces in India, the 900 kilometers of coastline. So what happens when you stop all the chemicals running off into the ocean? What does it do? With, with the ecosystem and the local climate and, and the interaction with, with the sea, yeah, no, I don't think. Absolutely. I'm pretty sure nobody has ever done this at this scale, meaning we need to monitor it. Absolutely. Yeah. And and, and all, not just humans, you know, other species. What happens to fish? Uh, what changes in their uh, um, ecosystem? Um, so, it, so there's a lot uh, that can actually come out of it, and it could possibly give us a solution that the world at large could benefit from. 
because um, one of the things that hasn't happened, and, and I think this is crucial to note, that uh, although there's a large body of people and thinkers and policymakers who are convinced that we need to do the right things and we need to turn around before we just drop off the cliff. But the solutions have just not been there at scale or at a system scale that people could adopt in full knowledge of the outcomes. Uh, and because once you have that, then I think the right thinking policymakers, politicians, leaders the world over can then have something to really choose in full understanding of uh, the risks and rewards. And then they would be able to take that quantum leap and, uh, and change things around. Until then, what you hear is that, you know, you need external infusion of uh, nutrients in the form of synthetic chemical fertilizers to be able to grow food with the right nutrient base that benefits humans. And, and that's the existing science. And of course, there's a lot more debate now than there was possibly 30, 40 years ago. But then the fact remains that an alternative at system scale hasn't been presented with all the evidence. So I think the biggest benefit that will come out of the scale out of the ZBNF program would be not just the fact that it benefits 6 million smallholders and by extension, the 54 million people in Andhra Pradesh province of India or the 1.3 billion people in India itself and, and the rest of the world, but more importantly, present a system scale alternative that uh, communities and countries can benefit from. And I mean, there's a lot to unpack in there, but let's do it step by step. Um, because many are work, or not many, there are quite some projects and programs to, to work with smaller farmers, smaller groups, slightly larger groups, etc. But many stop, I guess, at the, maybe the 160,000 that the program is currently reaching. Yes, they will get to 500,000 by March, but then somehow, and I would love to know how that happened, the, the crazy idea came to raise 2.3 billion um, dollars in a green or in a climate bond, not in a, uh, in a grant, but in a climate bond to finance the speed up. How did that process happen? And, and what were you thinking? Because it's such, a, it's such a large amount compared to anything else in regenerative agriculture. And, and you're going after institutional investors, which are not known to be the first movers. So it is extremely bold. How, how did it go from 160,000 160, to five to six million? And, and the idea of getting institutional impact investing capital uh, involved? Well, you know, when we started discussing with the government of Andhra Pradesh, um, uh, two things were most striking. Uh, when we talked to the farmers, the energy is absolutely infectious. Uh, they are proud of what they are doing. And, and I'll just give you an example. Uh, we recently launched the scale out um, in a big ceremony in Andhra Pradesh on the 2nd of June, uh, just before the World Environment Day that uh, in, uh, India was hosting this year, uh, the global event. And uh, there were about 8,000 champion farmers uh, that had traveled from different parts of the province. Uh, and when I say champion farmers, they didn't decide they are the champions. Their villages voted and decided that okay, these are the best farmers from our village. They'll represent us. So you had somebody from literally every village of the province. And uh, so we had 8,000 farmers in that uh, gathering. Other, Of course, there were world leaders and others who were also present. And then one of the distinguished visitors was asking me, uh, you know, this is this is really surprising that uh, to see the almost classroom, high school classroom-like discipline among the farmers. They're sitting there, they're not moving, they're clapping at every word that comes out, um, they're smiling. Uh, it's difficult to pull it off, even in a small classroom. How is this possible here? And I was telling the gentleman, I said, sir, you got it entirely wrong. This is their show. We are the people they have come here to watch. Uh, it's, they are there because they are proud of their achievements. Uh, and the world has gathered here to felicitate them and appreciate their work. Um, so why would they even consider walking out and uh, not being attentive? And he said, oh my God, you actually hit it on the head. 
because that's what it is. And that is why, uh, and there were almost 50% women farmers there, uh, and they were the most energetic and enthusiastic. And, and so, you know, it goes down to the fact that it's about people. And when people are ready to make a difference, they do. And, and so that's the first thing that uh, we found was most infectious uh, as manifested on the 2nd June launch event. And we saw that ourselves uh, at a scale of thousands of farmers. And then the chief minister, uh, he, I asked him actually when we started the conversations, he said, why are you doing this? This is uh, too big. And uh, of course, we all want it to work, uh, but there are always risks. Uh, when you're dealing with even 160,000 farmers, that's a good number, but not 6 million. Because 6 million is a lot more, you know, because you're just at about 2.5% roughly. And then he said, you know, no, this is not about uh, scoring some brownie points or, uh, uh, and, and Chandrababu Naidu, the chief minister, is an amazing human being. His uh, enthusiasm is infectious as his aspirations for his people. And then that's when we were convinced that this is the right kind of province to really step out of our comfort zone and make it happen. And and, and his point was simple. He says, you know, if we are not serving the people in the right way, what are we here for? What exactly are we doing as leaders? Uh, and he, he said, I see a great opportunity and, uh, and UN Environment, uh, can be a great partner. This was even before Sustainable India Finance Facility was set up. Uh, so please help us um, make it a reality. Uh, and then, of course, I, we asked, what is your ambition? He said, everything. All six million smallholders should convert. Uh, and so then we started working on the details. And, uh, and then, of course, um, we, we started discussing with our partners uh, or together with whom we had set up the Tropical Landscapes Finance Facility in 2016. And uh, and it is also uh, a fact that a few months later, uh, UN Environment and BNP Paribas came together to sign a $10 billion MOU uh, to bring sustainable finance uh, to projects uh, and ideas across the planet with significant um, social and environmental impact. Uh, and and so, so we had uh, a lot of things happening um, after uh, those conversations with uh, Chief Minister Naidu, and then uh, uh, we thought that you know it's 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 something worth doing, and and this is uh, this is something the this is a borrowing that the government is uh, this is not a grant, uh, and we are we have started looking at uh, different ways and means with which you could actually make this cost neutral. And I'll give you a quick example. Not that we have agreed with anyone on this, but we are working on uh, um, studying uh, the potential and the possibilities. And the idea is this. Uh, India currently spends roughly about $12 billion on fertilizer subsidies every year. Uh, and give or take a few, uh, about a billion dollars is spent in Andhra Pradesh alone or as fertilizer subsidies. So in terms of a simple arithmetic, because this form of agriculture completely obviates the need for any synthetic chemical fertilizers and pesticides, because that's a guiding principle, when you are completely um, scaled up to system You're level... You're going to save about a billion a year. Yeah. In perpetuity. So only that would be enough. I mean, you need to scale to six million farmers, more than more, enough to pay back in, in less than three years, obviously. That's right. And so... But of course, you would have a scaled uh, rollout, uh, um, so it will be a phased rollout, uh, and obviously it will take a little more than three years. So, so we've targeted uh, five years. So we start uh, around uh, April 2019, and then we end in 2024. So that's basically what it is—the the scale out. But the, the the savings in this case, because it's a climate bond to a state, to a, a, a province in in India. So it's not to a company or to a project. It's to uh, the state and it specifically will only be used to scale up this program but in any case the the savings will be probably so large that that um, the cash flow to pay back uh, this this bond is 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 going to be there absolutely and it it will become cost neutral 
to everybody. It will become cost neutral to the state government because technically the money is being spent now. So you just uh, you're going to save and you're going to pay back. Uh, and then the central government, which pays for the subsidies, uh, will end up saving a billion dollar every year. Um, they'll start saving already uh, from this year onwards. But but uh, come 2024, they'll be saving a billion dollars with all cost inflations added in perpetuity. So it's a win-win-win for everybody. And that's just yeah, just a fertilizer. Except, and I'm going to ask the, the devil's advocate question, except for the fertilizer industry, how much pushback are you and, and lobbying, dirty campaigning, etc. are you expecting from an industry that's taking 20 billion a year in, in India? I can imagine they're going to play the poor people are not going to eat. Uh, this is horrible for farmers, uh, horrible for, for anybody, carbs quite quite strongly. What, what, are, you, what are you seeing there? And what well, are you, you expecting know, my... There? I look at everything uh, a little uh, positively. Uh, I understand the challenges. I am not starry-eyed, um, but uh, but the uh, the point is that uh, um, I, I think there the are several uh, crucial points to note here. Uh, I have a positive take on this, and I look at the fossil fuel industry. And I look at countries that have been overly dependent on fossil fuels. And they're playing dirty, yeah. They're, they're playing, just like the GMOs, they're playing very, very dirty. They did. They did uh, for a while. But now they see the writing on the wall, and, and most of them are changing. You look at a lot of the um, oil companies worldwide, they're, they're going big into wind, solar, uh, uh, and uh, biogas. So they... They're diversifying their portfolio because you're not a serious business entity if you don't see the challenges and the risks to business continuity. Uh, if you look at the... So what, what would you say to a leading fertilizer uh, producer? What, what, what could be their role in, a, in, in India where zero budget natural farming is the norm? Well, you know, the, uh, I would... Uh, uh, urge them to see, you know, they are in business. They are not in the business of uh, selling a particular thing because a business can be any business. It doesn't have to be a particular product being sold. Um, as we have seen the evolution of the fertilizer industry, uh, not every kind of fertilizer was being produced in the 30s and the 40s and the 50s and the 60s. And as agriculture has grown, needs have, um, we have seen more pronounced needs in a certain segment of the fertilizer uh, industry, and then those have been met by adding capacity and all. And, and if you look at India's case, I'm, I'm, I'm coming back to a country level, India imports a lot of uh, its fertilizers. So uh, if you look at urea and diammonium phosphate, which is more popularly known as uh, DAP, these are the two mostly uh, most widely used fertilizers in India, that uh, uh, a lot of it is imported, uh, and 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 this is why. Uh, and and last year, if you if you look at uh, um, the uh, the third quarter of this financial year in India, uh, which is uh, between October and December twenty, uh, the by 66%. So even if in uh, case of Andhra Pradesh, which is uh, a very big agricultural state in India, but at the same time uh, uses about one twelfth of the fertilizer uses in the country. Uh, so e even if it goes to zero, uh, it's India in a big way because India is currently importing all that. Uh, so they stop, they stop importing. Uh, and 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 it improves the current uh, account, the balance of payments. So from India's perspective, it's a win-win at several levels. And I'm absolutely not defending the fertilizer industry. I think it's adapt or die. And if they don't see this writing on the wall, like the energy companies saw or the fossil fuel companies saw ten years ago, it it's their business risk. But I, I know that they're gonna they're gonna push. <laughs> they they will not go under. Or change no, that no, easily, I, 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 I fully the, agree. The, the... I, I fully agree with you uh, in that analysis. But uh, my limited point is that, from India's perspective, 
They're importing a very large um, um, amount of fertilizers every year, although they have a goal to produce everything within the country uh, in a few years' time. But the fact remains that they're importing a large percentage of the fertilizer required in the country from abroad, uh, and which puts a strain on their uh, balance of payments and the current account deficit and all. So uh, this helps the country uh, as well uh, at the multiple levels. Yeah, no, sure. And and let's um, shift gears a bit and look for for a second of the on the on the bond and the cooperation with BNP Paribas. Um, so it's two point three billion, but you're cutting it in tranches. Can you talk a bit about how it how it would look like and and when more or less you're you're planning to do? Of course, you're you're working on it, but when when what what can we expect? When uh, when are you going to fundraise? Et well, the 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 target is to uh, uh, to get to the market. Uh, uh, around June 2019, because that's when the funds uh, are required. Uh, the government has its own funds um, uh, with the support of the uh, the government of India, the central government. Uh, and uh, so they have their own resources to get to half a million farmers by March 2019. So they don't need any resources before the next um, agricultural season. Uh, which is around uh, July uh, 2019. So, so the idea is to uh, go to the markets around June 2019 because, as you so very well know, it takes a long time to create the structures, to do, do the credit trading, to bring the right actors together, uh, to find a, a bit of blending um, so that uh, um, the costs remain within reasonable limits uh, and uh, uh, and of course that helps create the impact uh, and achieve the higher goals our thinking is that uh, we'll be raising the money in uh, three different tranches because the program is such that there are no subsidies uh, being given this is basically the cost of hand holding uh, because it's a very intensive program so you have to train people you have to help them throughout for multiple crop cycles so that they not only understand what it is, but become adept at it. Uh, there's also uh, part of the program is research and science uh, to establish it as strongly as possible uh, as we go along and make course corrections if and as needed. Then there's the education element because you need to prepare the next generation of farmers. And in that, we're working with uh, a whole lot of partners, including um, the Prince's uh, Charity uh, in the UK, the uh, Prince Charles. Uh, and, and so we're working with a large number of partners worldwide. Uh, the Global Alliance for the Future of the Food is a very valuable partner uh, and, and so many others. You know, So the idea is to prepare everybody as we go along. So there are technically no subsidies, but there's a lot of costs of rollout of uh, ensuring that there's no rollback and uh, and that the farmers uh, are helped all through the process, um, not just in the first crop cycle, but perhaps into the fifth, sixth, seventh, tenth crop cycle, so that they all become experts uh, in their own. Become champions farmers. Yeah. They all become champions in their own right. And, and this is the most important part of this program is that it is a farmer-to-farmer -farmer extension. And you'll be surprised, uh, Sonny Burgess, who's the uh, president of the World Business Council on Sustainable Development, he was at the launch of the scale-out on 2nd June in Vijayawada. He was there with uh, the top management of Olam International. As you know, Olam is one of the world's largest agribusinesses. And uh, we're looking forward to collaborate with them. And, uh, uh, and, and they, the excitement is mutual. So Sunny, in his speech, mentioned that uh, even at 165,000, this is the world's largest farmer-to-farmer -farmer extension. And I can't even imagine what will happen when you get to 6 million. Oh, I'm, I'm very curious on, on impact, obviously, on people, but also on the ecosystem. What changes locally on the climate are what, what happens with droughts and rain? Because you're at such a large scale... That, that you're probably going to influence the not only the microclimate above the, the, the land of the individual farmer and not maybe even above the village, 
but actually probably at a state or a region level, which is quite, quite interesting because we've never, never seen that. Absolutely. And no one has ever seen that. And then, of course, I mean, we have already seen significant changes to the microclimate because it's been going on for more than three years now. Uh, and in some places, seven, eight crop cycles have passed by. Uh, and, uh, um, and to give you a quick example, uh, a normal healthy soil is supposed to have roughly about 70 uh, earthworms per cubic meter uh, of soil. And here in, in, in many places, we've uh, done the counts and... Uh, they're up to 120. Uh, it's amazing what happens when you let the soil heal itself. And of course, the skeptics would say the science doesn't agree because where's the nitrogen, where's the phosphate? And I, uh, I, I fully respect and sympathize with those questions because that's what they know. So that question is very natural because here there's a science that we perhaps certainly knew a uh, hundred years ago, never understood, but knew. And, and so we need to bring understanding that, to that knowledge uh, and a more grounded scientific understanding. And then that's, uh, so, and that's what we're working on uh, with uh, the World Agroforestry Center, with the uh, University of Essex, uh, with uh, the Council on Energy, Environment and Water. Um, so so we, we're partnering with some of the leading institutions in the world uh, to see how best to establish, observe and establish the science and uh, share it worldwide. Absolutely independent studies with nothing to have to do with the program implementers uh, other than the fact that they provide access to the data. And who are you targeting in terms of investors? I can imagine with this amount, so you say three tra tranches, so about 750 million, uh, it's mostly institutional investors as most of the climate bonds are so far? Are you targeting high net worth individuals and family offices? And maybe even, because democratization is always a big piece uh, in, in the discussion on impact investing and, and regenerative agriculture. What are you, your thoughts on, uh, on, on where to, to raise these tranches? Uh, I think this, my answer is all of above uh, because you really need everybody uh, to come on board the pension funds, the insurance funds, who have a very long-term view of these matters. Uh, and uh, uh, the recent years has seen a spurt of these uh, uh, funds uh, taking a lot of interest in structures with climate uh, and social impact. Uh, then, of course, there's a lot of uh, philanthropies uh, who have their own investment arms. Uh, and, and there again, uh, there's a huge opportunity because some of these philanthropies um, that are doing outstanding work, they keep both of it separate, you know. So the investment and arm goes ahead and makes money. Which is the fundamental tension in impact investing. I mean, everybody's saying bring them together because you're doing more harm with your investment arm that you can clean up with your Exactly, arm. exactly. So, so you put it so eloquently. And, and so here is an opportunity. They can do both. And with very little risk because it's a quasi-sovereign that is borrowing. So it's not like you are giving money to some corporate entity, which could turn out to be a fly-by-night operator or, or somebody who is very articulate in putting across uh, everything you want to hear, but doesn't deliver the goods. Here, that is not the case. Here is a potential client that has uh, shown its uh, uh, intent and integrity, put its money uh, where its mouth is uh, would have taken uh, the program up to a gigantic scale already with 500,000 smallholders uh, by March 2019, after which uh, we are intervening. So this is not things happening in a vacuum. These are things happening in a, on a, uh, from a solid platform of performance, uh, of genuine achievement, uh, that's in the public domain for anyone to go and see and inspect. Uh, this is not some lab tests that uh, we are, uh, you know, you, you hear those a lot, uh, that suddenly, you know, five years later, you find out that all those wonderful scientific papers were based on dodgy data and all. Here, that is not the case. This is about people. It's out in the open. Everybody can go and have a look as to what transformative changes are happening across the landscape. Uh, and, and so I think this, 
should give in potential investors a great degree of confidence, A, that it is a provincial government with a track record of performance. Now, mind you, Andhra Pradesh is growing at more than 10% uh, of uh, GDP uh, consistently, which is bigger than the national average of India or the global average uh, by a mile. Uh, and, and they have a very good administration. They have a history of performance. Uh, this province has been at the heart of India's IT revolution uh, that has helped not only India, but the rest of the world. Uh, and this chief minister was at the heart of that IT revolution. Uh, uh, so he's been around for a long time uh, and is a politician uh, whose commitment to people and sustainability uh, is above board. So I think at all levels, this adds up to a great investment for anyone who's like, looking to make an impact. And, and what would be the biggest risk for, for this project? Uh, what, what if you could ma wave your magic wand and, and take, change one thing uh, on, on, from the risk perspective, if you have to, to play the, the devil's advocate card, what would you see as, as over, over the next years as the biggest, biggest risk? Um, I, think, I think there are pros and cons. I think the biggest risk uh, is that uh, uh, they have an election coming up in uh, uh, March uh, next year. Uh, for the uh, state government uh, and the chief minister and his party will be up for re-election. And so uh, that is a risk. And, and this will be a subject, obviously. Uh, this is a subject. I mean, you know, I think uh, uh, one would be extremely naive uh, not to take note of the fact that uh, the political champion uh, is up for re-election. Uh, so uh, I'm in no position to speculate. Uh, although, uh, depending on who you speak to, uh, people would tell you that uh, the ruling party is most likely to win. Um, there will be those that might say that that's not the case. So we stay out of the politics. That's not what interests us. But it is indeed a potential risk that the political champion uh, may not be around to do this. Uh, but, uh, but that's one part of the risk equation. The fact that it would have already gone up to half a million farmers with benefits for everybody to see is, is something that makes it an unstoppable force. Uh, and we have uh, spoken to politicians across the spectrum in the state and in the country, and there's a huge movement forward in recognizing the potential of what is happening. So no matter who's in power, I don't think it presents much of a risk. This will go on. So that's the first. So there's the pro and the cons. But but keeping that in mind, we also decided not to go to the market before the elections are over. So we would also like the elections to be over. And depending on who's in government, we would uh, revisit the commitments and uh, and then we will go to the market. So So we've taken these things into consideration before deciding when to go to the market. And I want to be conscious of your time because we are on, on top of the hour. What would be, um, not investment advice, but if, if you imagine that there's a, an, an audience, a theater full of impact investors that are into regenerative agriculture and would like to um, do more, move their capital, etc. What would you say, definitely look at, at this offer, obviously, and follow this, but where, where would you I give your advice to look specifically where, where should they learn what could they learn from um, this specific um, quite bold and uh, already iconic project where, where should they pay most attention to in terms of their impact investing uh, practices well i think you know this this uh, this particular investment opportunity presents a huge uh, palette of possibilities from from the perspective of a very discerning sustainability focused impact investor uh, this is about uh, land. This is about landscapes. This is about ecosystems. This is about the microclimate, the macroclimate. This is about all species. This is about biodiversity. This is about people. This is about human health. Uh, this is about oceanic uh, ecosystems. So this is, in summary, this presents an opportunity 
you know, there's there's all kinds of impact investing going on. You know, we're talking about saving the coral reefs. We're talking about saving the oceans. We're talking about saving the species and and what have you. Now, here is an idea that saves everything. So you don't need to take your pick. Everybody, no matter what their interests, can come together uh, and find their results within the bigger scheme of things here. And, and I think that is why it is such an exciting possibility uh, in terms of, now if you take the Rio conventions, just to be uh, to present you a legal case, uh, the three Rio conventions, uh, the CCD, uh, the CBD, uh, and uh, the UNFCCC, uh, climate change, biodiversity, and uh, against uh, desertification, this takes care of everything. So there has seldom been investments that really at this scale target everything in one go. And, and, and this could perhaps be the solution that we are all looking for. This is certainly worth investing and the risks are minimal because it's the government that is borrowing, a government with a very impressive track record uh, that is borrowing. And, uh, and, and as I mentioned, we are working on studies and research on the fertilizer piece that could make it completely cost neutral, both for the provincial government and the national government uh, in India. So technically, you don't, you're not paying back. It is cost neutral, uh, and you're saving a pile, and it benefits tens of millions of people at the very minimum, the 54 million people who live in Andhra Pradesh, but the rest of the country and the world. So it's a no-brainer to me. You really don't have to make a case. The, the smart investors uh, would see it for what it is. I want to thank you so much, Sachi, for, for taking the time. I know it's very early where you are and you have a very busy day and busy days ahead of you to, to share this story. Just to be clear, we're not giving investment advice. You should always um, make your own due diligence. But I'm, I'm very much looking forward to following uh, this and, and check in with you closer to fundraising or during fundraising to see uh, the reactions and responses and, and, and follow this, this very bold and ambitious but very necessary project. Thank you so much. And thank you so much, Korn. Uh, it's been a delight. You just listened to an interview with Sachi Tripathi, where we discussed one of the projects he's involved in to bring institutional capital, this means billions, to the table to restore landscapes and many millions of acres, together with smallholder farmers. Thank you for making the time to listen to this podcast and making it all the way till the end. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. If you found the Investing in Regenerative Agriculture and Food podcast valuable, there are a few simple ways you can use to support it. Number one, rate and review the podcast on your podcast app. That's the best way for other listeners to find the podcast, and it only takes a few seconds. Number two, share this podcast on social media or email it to your friends and colleagues. Number three, if this podcast has been of value to you, and if you have the means, please join my Patreon community to help grow this platform and allow me to take it further. You can find all the details on patreon.com slash regenerative agriculture or in the description below. Thank you so much and see you at the next podcast.